Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So glad to be here. So glad to be here with Kate Willett. How are you, Kate? I'm good. You know, it's just another uh, double Catherine event in my life. Another K on K, Catherine on Catherine, Catherine Rose and Catherine, your Anne. Catherine Ann. Catherine yeah. Ann. Two we need Kate like Liz- a Catherine Elizabeth to really balance we do. it out we really here. Need yeah. Catherine Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. That would feel good. <laughs> that would feel right. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we have a great show. And of course, uh, we're going to be talking about the Texas abortion ban, and there's going to be a big debate. Susan Sarandon, guilty or not guilty of creating the Texas abortion ban? Unclear. We'll have to see. We'll find out hopefully by the end of the show. Yeah. But we have a great lineup. We have Sam Moyne, who is a professor of law and a professor of history at Yale. We also have Esha Kirishaswamy, Esperanza Fonseca, Rebecca Parson. They'll all be joining us. And uh, we're also going to bring on a special guest who happens to be in the room with me. And I'm not talking about Bodhi. Sorry, guys. You're not that lucky. But you'll see. You'll see who the special guest is. And Kate, I, didn't, I need to introduce Kate. Kate is a comedian. She has her own special, Netflix special. She's also the author of Your Bag Anthropology, which is a great Audible original. And she's the co-host of the Reply Guys podcast. Thanks for having me on the show, Katie. I'm excited to get to talk about the Texas abortion man and, you know, our victory for Jesus as our our main friend. So, you know, he is our co-pilot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he sounds like he's our co-pilot because my name is Catherine Rose and you're Catherine Ann. I know, really it is a very Catholic people. name. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not a big fan of Jesus. I grew up with the guy. That's funny, I am, probably because I didn't grow up with him, yeah. Yeah, I had Jesus really kind of drilled into me. I had to go to the evangelical Christian camp and stuff. And I like to think that I have rejected my whole Christian upbringing. But then if I look like at my life now, like I'm just always infatuated with some sort of beard guy who is very sad, devoted to some kind of higher purpose, wants to turn the water into wine. And I'm like, this shit's in there somewhere, you know? So in the water or the wine, unclear. Yeah. Who can keep track? So maybe, uh, Maybe I can have some kind of a starting point with these evangelical people. I don't know. Like like some common grounds, you know? Common like, ground, hey, yeah. You like a sad beard guy. I like a right. sad beard guy. You know, let's see where we can go from here, right? So I see, yes. A, a fellowship. Exactly. You can find fellowship there, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of sad bearded guys, we're going to bring in a not <laughs> sad, but a pensive bearded guy. And we're going to bring in a pensive, unbearded woman. They, I, we're going to call this the Legal Eagles Hour. I just made that up. And it's not going to be an hour either. But let me bring um, on to the virtual stage, and then I'll bring on to the physical stage. So first, let's bring this guy in. Sam Wine. You know him. You love him. He's been on the show before. He's the Katie Helper Show's uh, legal correspondent. If he doesn't know that, now he does. Professor 
what an honor, right? I mean, you've been at Harvard, Columbia, now at Yale, and then you saved the best for last, Katie Halper Jones status. I, yeah. I've peaked and, you know, peaked. it's all downhill now. And he's the author of several books, and his latest book is Humane, and we're going to have him back on the show to talk about that, which is about how um, the war on terror... How, well, what's the subpoint? It's humane, how... How the United States abandoned peace and reinvented war. There you go. It's a, it's like a, it's a thriller kind of. Absolutely. It's a, it's a you surprise. Know what that means you have to come back. Yeah, to the it's next a who done it because you don't That's know. No it sounds almost counterintuitive. You know, there are lots of interesting debates going on. We're going to have to have a, a debate on that. Um, you'll have to choose your favorite frenemy who you wanted to be on my show. Be good, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I'll object when the points aren't fair. Sounds I good. object. And we also have with us joining us right now. She is a retired, am I allowed to say that? I have to say that. It's actually against the law for me not to say that. Retired New York State Supreme Court Justice, Emily Jane Goodman, who left the bench a few years ago and is now in private practice. And she's been my personal legal correspondent since I was 10. She's a longtime feminist, reproductive rights activist, and has taken positions on everything from family law to housing to domestic violence. She started her career as a defense lawyer for the Attica Brothers Defense. And she's been called Judge Poodle by Giuliani. Is that who calls you Judge Poodle? Well, the New York Post. The New York Post. I'd say it first. Because you were the laptop, lap dog of the left, right? Yes. Definitely. Here is your headphone. You just put it in right there. Yeah, perfect. All right. How's this? Can everyone see us? You guys are not joined at the hip, but joined at the ear. Okay, great. Hi, Sam. Nice to see you. You guys can compare your LSAT scores later. Hello. But um, can you tell us the latest in Texas? What just happened? I mean, just really quickly, Texas passed a fetal heartbeat bill. Seen these before. Prohibits abortion uh, after the six-week mark when most pregnant women do not yet know that they're pregnant. Um, but then Texas did something diabolical and new, uh, and it it lets say outsourced enforcement of the law. Traditionally, you could sue to block the law by suing the government, the likely enforcer. In this case, the government isn't empowered to enforce the, the, the ban directly. Instead, the law invites private citizens to sue abortion providers uh, and actually it rewards them by giving them $10,000 if, if they successfully identify uh, in, in, in a suit, a, 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 an abortion provider that has violated the law. Wait, uh, but and this raised up procedural issues, which we can get into. I have a quick question as a follow-up. This isn't just $10,000 for the for finding an abortion provider. It can also be like anyone who assisted the person getting an abortion, like a, a rideshare driver or a friend, right? Like it's, it's pretty expansive. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, so... It's open season uh, on, on abortion, and it's scary. What this did is make it possible for there to be a, a, a lot of confusion around how to block the, the bill. Um, uh, abortion providers did sue immediately, uh, and the Supreme Court declined to uh, help them. And so as a result of that order the other night, or non-order, the bills in effect, and uh, as 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 from what I've seen, 
uh, Texas providers have stopped providing just because they want to avoid uh, lots of lawsuits. They'd have to defend against them uh, if sued by private citizens for for damages. Uh, and so uh, that's where things stand. Now, the Supreme Court, we can get into like the tea leaves of the opinions that issued the other night. Uh, yeah. But the, 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 the order that came down uh, made clear that it's it's not tantamount to overruling Roe v. Wade, but not a lot of us believe believe those five justices when they offer these assurances. Yeah, uh, and, and so that's the reason uh, beyond just the kind of local Texas hijinks, which will soon go national. Right. Um, really, it's it's that the 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 days of Roe v. Wade are numbered. Emily, what did you think? Well, the this? thing is, when you say that um, it's open season on abortion, what it is is open season on women. Of course. It, it is the most dangerous and damaging patriarchal act, both by the legislature and the court. And it's fine to say, well, they took no action, and so it's just kind of a little procedural thing. But it isn't a little procedural thing, because uh, if not for this um, shadow litigation that no one knows is happening in the middle of the night, the uh, appropriate thing to do would have been to wait for um, the lower courts to be heard on it, for briefs to be submitted. And for argument to be had, and uh, they clearly opted not to do any of that. And in the meantime, while they say, "Well, they didn't meet standard for um, an, an injunction or a restraining order," the fact is that a lot of women are going to be damaged in in this period. I think that's right. And, you know, and we, we can get into the legal details, which include things like the what we now call the shadow docket, where the, the court is now doing a lot of its business, uh, business kind of on the side without lots of briefing and and with no oral argument. Um, it's it's done a lot of protection of evangelicals and other religious people in the United States who have wanted to. Um, flout various health regulations during the pandemic. But in this case, uh, the Supreme Court didn't help litigants claiming uh, their constitutional rights, but the, the order nonetheless issued with, with very minimal consideration. And Justice Elena Kagan and her dissent to the order kind of made a special point of attacking this new kind of, let's say, off-the-books kind of adjudication, which the Supreme Court has been trending towards in recent years. And it's not just a question of whether they helped or didn't help one group or another. These are major constitutional issues, and so many lives are involved. And I always point to the lives of future unwanted children, which will be the natural result of this. It, it is so demeaning to the court the Supreme Court of the United States to just decide, in effect, even though we can call it procedural, but in effect, that this law passes muster and the arguments in favor of an injunction are just not really strong enough. That's, that's what they said. 
And um, again, I say it's an extremely dangerous moment for women. You know, my take is that it 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 begs the question why we're leaving this to the Supreme Court. Yeah, uh, you're it, like back a in the seventies. We can get back into like the the old days. Why uh, the the court was relied upon to uh, proclaim abortion rights in the first instance when it was incredibly controversial, uh, even at the price of awakening of a vicious right wing counterattack that's lasted generations and it involved capture mm. of the Supreme Court successful capture we now know but the truth is most of our rights uh including many women's rights in areas like employment have come from the national congress and nothing stops the congress right now from enacting uh abortion rights as a national entitlement uh under the 14th amendment most likely possibly under other sources in the constitution like the commerce clause or the 13th amendment and there's there's been a bill pending for years in the congress called the women's health protection act uh and all all that should happen i think is that we should give up on the court court as the source of this sacrosanct right and say it's up to the majority in the country yeah, uh, at least is represented in our terrible, you know, non-majoritarian Congress because of the Senate and so forth to pass a bill to protect women and and to strike a blow against patriarchy uh, rather than let the Supreme Court prop it up for another. And, and generation. As, as we know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg predicted this from the beginning. She said that Roe v. Wade. Of, of course, she was fiercely pro-choice, but that it was decided on the wrong grounds. Correct. In, 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 instead of privacy, it should have been decided on the 14th Amendment. It should have been equal protection, and it should have had the federal implications of the, of the Constitution. But as to other amendments, I am of the opinion that the 13th Amendment kicks in here because in my opinion the destruction of the right to um, abortion and a woman's right to choose leads to involuntary motherhood which i consider slavery and hot take you heard it here first on the katie halpert show from emily jane goodness yes. okay this could be a big thing tomorrow coming your way supreme court <laughs> so that the right the 13th amendment which we often think of as the anti-slavery amendment seems to me to be clearly uh, uh, apt in this situation. And uh, we, as women, know uh, w what it would be like to have to go through a, an unwanted pregnancy, raise an unwanted child. And I hope that it's understood that I'm not in any way d diminishing the significance of slavery as we ordinarily think of it in our history. But I think this is also slavery. I love that argument. You know, so it's a great argument because it goes back and, and undoes some of the damage that the Supreme Court did to the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th and the 14th after the Civil War. The question is, who, who does that work of, of salvaging those amendments? Because the Supreme Court really did, after this civil war and the slaughterhouse cases, combine the 13th Amendment to 
African-American slave chattel slavery. Uh, and then the 14th Amendment, as you suggest, um, has not been exploited with all of its egalitarian implications to the hilt ever by the Supreme Court. So w- why not ask the Congress, demand the Congress to pass laws uh, in the name of those precious values? And it's not going to be the Supreme Court, even if we want it to be. Um, Can I ask a follow-up question here? Introduced every year, but that's gone nowhere, as you know. Well, that's true, but now it's an emergency. So I have a follow-up question. Let's say, you know, Nancy Pelosi has actually, she uh, she has stated that she plans to uh, bring um, a bill enshrining abortion rights to the floor of the House. I imagine it will pass there. Um, doesn't look like it's going to pass the Senate, but like, let's just say it does. You know, Collins, Murkowski, they vote for it. They get all the Democrats in check. It's not filibustered. Um, can't the Supreme Court just like declare this bill unconstitutional? Like, aren't we sort of always in a battle with this entity or is the idea just to buy some time? Well, I hope not. So in, in the long run, I, you know, and we've talked about this on Katie's show before, we, we have to deprive the Supreme Court of, of power over our, our, our legislation. Yeah. But you're right that the Supreme Court, as of today, has enough power to invalidate any law that the Congress passes. Now, note that right now, it's only kind of setting itself to up, up to overturn its own prior decision, its own precedent. And Congress has never said, no, we're passing a law to protect Roe and daring the court to overturn it, which raises the stakes. Now, it would lead to a, a, a kind of battle royale, and that's actually probably what we need to discipline the court and get it to stop harming democracy day after day and year after year. Most important, the 13th and 14th Amendments both have sections which say it's up to Congress to pass legislation to enforce these values. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the court could say, it doesn't have enough power to pass this particular law. But if there's a majority and we say we're staking our, our kind of the future of the country on th- on this right that the Congress has decided to protect finally, I, ha- I have a hard time imagining that the court uh, uh, would, would, you know, would challenge it. Right now, it's just kind of gets to revise its own work. And that's yeah. easy, not hard. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Revising your own work can be really stressful sometimes. True. Yeah. Well, it's taken a <laughs> pulling an all Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and we also didn't have our eye on the ball uh, for all these years. We tended to take this quote right for granted, and we should have understood in the context of what was going on with re- religious commitments and others that. Roe v. Wade and the right and abortion were always at risk. And whether it was in the Congress or otherwise, we um, we were asleep. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been great. Thank you for this legal, this legal legal. This has been our 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 debut segment of Legal Eagles with Emily Jane Goodman and Samuel Moyen. It's great to be thank on with you. Emily. Thanks. Yeah. And uh Great to yeah, meet really, both really of you. Yeah. Really yeah. nice to talk with you guys. Yeah, and you guys have to both come back. Anytime. Okay. See you next okay. time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
All right, by the way, we have some, okay, there we go. We got some like anti-choicers in the, and, you know what? I'll throw them a bone. I'll call you anti-abortionists in the chat. We have and I'm just going to make an announcement. In the chat? Oh, I'm going to read this. I think so. Yeah. Let's see. Pro-lifers look at abortion advocates the way vaccine advocates look at anti-vaxxers. When will we just stop trying to control each other's bodies? I'm gonna, I'm, that doesn't yeah. pass muster in this court. That, I'm, I have someone, been tweeting about how much I hate that analogy, by the way. Yeah. Do you want to take this or do you want me to take it? Well, I'm, I'm sure that we have the same thought, which is that me having an abortion, for example, that does not impact anyone else's health. Um, oh, right. Yes. It's yeah. not like you will. I'm not well, risking your life by having an abortion, right. whereas fact, I am risking your it. life by not getting vaccinated. Yeah. Also, I just don't get like you're having one is is forcing a zygote to develop into a person inside of you. Yeah. And I don't think that that's what a little thing is in your arm. And also, if you don't want it, fine, don't get it. But you can have access to certain things. There's a lot to talk about. All I'm going to say is, look, I'm a big, let's say I'm an anti-vaxxer, which I'm not, not going to compare it to the Holocaust or abortion. Those two things, I, as a person who does not agree with you, I'm doing you a favor. I'm giving you some PR tips. Those are both terrible, terrible analogies. I'm telling you, you guys can make arguments against the vaccine that do not equate vaccine identification to a yellow fucking star or having a human monster growing inside of you. I mean, it's not a monster unless you don't want it, in which case it's a monster. If you want it, it's cute. Well, but. I mean, to me, like, it's not even a, like, the the vaccine holocaust analogies, um, like, it actually extends all the way to mask holocaust analogies. <laughs> like, just putting a little piece of cloth on your mouth is somehow comparable. Oh, you're saying, like, like the, the mask people are like, okay, you were going to compare something to the holocaust, which is getting an injection? Hold my beer because I'm going to compare putting a piece of cloth in front of my face. Right. Yeah, the Holocaust, right. the civil rights movement, um, yeah. like uh, having to wear a mask or get a vaccine is is like a you know 1950s uh, early 50s level segregation. I mean, it's you know the analogies just don't stop with these folks. They love yeah. the inappropriate analogies. Yeah, just yeah, you guys, you're just harming yourselves. You're shooting yourselves in the arm. Yeah, so to speak. Just jabbing your, stop jabbing yourselves. Anyway, so we're going to, should we bring on the rest of this amazing panel that we have? And uh, yeah, I'm really excited. So let's bring on, first we're going to bring in Esha Krishnaswamy, who is the host of the Historically Podcast. Rebecca Parson, who is an activist and also running for Congress. Um, And uh, Esperanza is a host of Twink Rev. Is that right? Sorry. No, I'm I'm not a host. I was affiliated with them, but I am an organizer with the Transnational Feminist Organization Affirm. Affirm, yes. And um great guests. And uh we want people want to know what the uh the dog's name is. So Rebecca, if you could just share. Her name's Augie. Like Augie she's Doggy. So cute. Oh my god. Oh, like, yeah. So yeah, she's turn and is she went on my lap right now. She was spending the entire show trying to get on my lap. So just I do oh, what that's she great. wants. No, that's great. Yeah. No, we're very dog positive. In fact, I'll bring in I'll bring in Bodie soon. Um, but uh, thank you, thank you all so much for joining. Wanted to know your thoughts on this on this bill, and then of course we're going to get into this big debate that we're going to have over uh, whether or not we should be blaming who's to blame. Pin the pa- pin the tail on the non donkey. Just thought of that, right? <laughs> 
if we if blame like, Dick Van Dyke just because he was a Bernie bro too. Oh, and, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. So why not? Like, I think it's sexist to only blame Susan Sarandon. We should also blame Dick Van Dyke and Danny DeVito. Oh, Mark oh, Ruffalo. Yeah. Let's throw oh, some blame on him. He's so sure. hot he can take it. Yeah. No, yeah, no, you're no, right. It's just, it's ridiculous. You know, we'll, we'll go through. I actually collected some no, of my No, you're all wrong. Too. It's Ralph Nader's fault. It's Ralph Nader. That's, we should have a vote. Yeah. Actually, let me do a live tweet. Let's do a live tweet. Whose fault is it? Ralph Nader. <laughs> I'll Susan be back Brandon. in two minutes, ladies. Okay. But Jill Stein, like, they also named, what was the psychotic tweet? I forgot. I can't, I can't remember all of them. Too many. But let's let we'll go through some of them. You want we can go through some of them. But wait, can I make one quick comment though? Yeah, of course. Um, with regards to the Thirteenth Amendment, I'm a little uncomfortable because the Thirteenth Amendment has a little clause called "no slavery except for punishment in prison." So to use the Thirteenth Amendment in order to, I guess, legalize abortion would be problematic to because of our math incarcerated. So we're going to have to, all right, we're going to have to throw the kitchen sink at it. So we're going to have to take that part of it out. That'll be okay. easy enough, right, to amend the Constitution? Well, actually, check out, um, yesterday I interviewed Move to Amend uh, board member Daniel Lee. So go check out Move to Amend, and they actually want to hit a restart button and amend, like, just, like, toss out oh. the so check them out. They're really cool. Okay, we'll do. They started with the 20, what is it, 28th Amendment on money and politics, but then they realized, oh, we have far more things wrong with the Constitution than just uh, Citizens United. So yeah, check them out. Got it. <laughs> um, all right, we'll do that. So but what what do people think of, of what just happened? I mean, anything to add to this conversation? And and what can, you know, I'm, I'm, one of the reasons I wanted to have all of you on is because I think that the discussion for some people ends in, like, it's bad, which obviously, hot take, it is bad. But um, I think that, you know, from, from I guess, Rebecca, what I want to ask you um, is what, as someone who's running for Congress, what uh, is something that the Dems could actually do? Because, you know, we hear a lot of throwing people's hands up in the air, and then we'll get Esha and Esperanza, who, of course, don't believe in that anyway. But uh, a lot of people throw their hands up in the air, like, what is to be done, uh, to quote one of your faves, uh, Esha. But uh, <laughs> what, what, is, what, what can be done? What could the Democrats do? Well, the Democrats could pass an actual law, then they could have done that over the last 50 years since Roe v. Wade was passed, and their job is to legislate. So, wild idea, they could actually legislate um, instead of just wringing their hands and uh, raising money off whatever boogeyman they chose at the time to blame. Uh, you know, it's been I don't, it's 1972. It's been almost half a century without Congress legislating, codifying Roe v. Wade into law. So that's something that they could do. They could also kick... Um, anti-choice Democrats out of the party. Uh, Nancy Pelosi herself said, no, we're not going to do that. It's a big tent party. But okay, there's a party for that. The Republicans go there. Right. Yeah. Um, they could say to people like who are um, anti-choice, like um, is to, or senators who refuse to uh, end the filibuster, because even if the House passed something for the Senate, then it would get stuck with the filibuster. Uh, they could tell them, if you don't uh, end the filibuster, we will spend millions of DCCC dollars against you, kicking you out of your seat. But of course, they're not going to do any of these things because um, they are not interested in, in passing meaningful laws and really upending the way things are right now. They would rather status quo. Yeah. In fact, Nancy Pelosi has 
supported anti-choice Democrats over pro-choice alternatives and has spent Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, so I forgot uh, what's his buck's name that was running against Marie Newman in Chicago. Uh, Um, Dan Lipinski. Dan Lipinski. I knew it was something like that, but I I didn't want to get it wrong and sound like I was just anti-Semite. Or, you know, against Eastern Europeans well, or something like that. Like that guy. was not even Jewish. Yeah. Right. I don't know. The guy running against him was I a literal Christian. Nazi, too. Yeah, oh. I mean, but so, <laughs> you know, I mean, she she spent DCCC dollars against, like, a progressive pro-choice woman who's not even, like, a socialist or anything. She's just, you know, a typical kind of, like, Elizabeth Warren liberal um, pro-spending, but, like— not way out there, right? And um, Nancy Pelosi has, you know, in a few instances, right. uh, ch- chosen to go with, like, the centrist agenda, even at the expense of supporting reproductive rights. I do have some things to say around my thoughts on Texas. So, you know, one of the things that I want to remind people, which I'm sure you all know, is that, you know, patriarchy, when it started... Uh, it started through the control of women's sexual and reproductive capacity. And there's really this ongoing line of controlling women for their sexual and reproductive capacity throughout history from really the first date until now in 2021 uh, with what we're seeing in Texas. And I think that we really have to ask ourselves as we're getting bombarded with messages from the Democratic Party and the uh, liberal, you know, so-called progressives, which is that, you know, can patriarchy be stamped out by a patriarchal state under the control of a patriarchal ruling class and is getting roped in to more electoralism actually the solution to problems like this? I also want to remind people, right, that abortion is not the only reproductive rights issue that women are facing and battling out right now. Let's also remember forced sterilization, which just a few months ago in 2020, women, immigrant women came forward and said that the U.S. state, ICE, was forcefully sterilizing them. Uh, That quickly went out of the attention of media. And let's not forget that those ICE facilities were supported by Democrats, including progressive Democrats. And so I want to get into the meat of that. You know, is more electoralism necessarily the solution? to this constant fight for women's reproductive rights, which when I was born in 1991, uh, we were actually still fighting over, you know, Webster versus reproductive health services. Yeah, actually, well, Rebecca, I would love, could you respond to that, Rebecca? Not to put, keep going back to you, but I, th- I think you probably have a, um, like a view that's not either or, but do you want to respond to that? As someone who I think is yeah, pretty um, impatient with the Dems, yeah. Yeah, this is my second time running, and between uh, the last campaign and this one, I seriously considered just never running again. Um, and if I did, yeah, so I, I gave it serious, serious thought and, and almost didn't. Um, but I think that um, there are ways to pursue multiple avenues at once without having any of them detract from the other. So I don't think that people who are focusing on mutual aid should quit what they're doing and support my campaign. Um, because I think what they're doing is good, and I have lots of friends involved with groups like Food Not Bombs, or I don't think people should stop doing direct action um, if that's what they like doing. And I, that's my background since the last election has been uh, occupying empty buildings with 
local groups, including Food Not Bombs and others, to get more housing uh, for homeless people in Tacoma. And I just think it's a matter of, uh, I don't know, I think this isn't something that just gets discussed this, that much, but what do you enjoy doing? Out of all the fields of activism, Perfect, yeah. what could you be doing? Are you going to, um, if you love mutual aid, talk yourself out of it and do something else? No, if you love polit- like electoral politics, you're going to talk yourself out of it and do something that doesn't, you have no joy, you, you're just, you'll just get burned out. I think that's something that doesn't get discussed much. At the same time, yeah, a lot of energy does get sucked into uh, electoral campaigns and they betray us time after time after time after time. And I think you have to kind of look at um, the background. Like when people say that they were activists, what does that mean? Does that mean that they went to one DSA meeting to ask for their endorsement? And I know some people on this, uh, like a couple of you probably don't even like DSA. You think they're basically yeah. centrists. So I'm just saying, like, I understand where you're coming from. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that my place is electoral politics, um, combined with the ref action. And we saw that with, uh, Corey Bush. So what she did, a lot of people I saw online arguing too little, too late, should have done something sooner, but nothing was done sooner. So when it came, it came to it, she slept out on the steps for, I think it was five days and five nights in a row, got the eviction moratorium extended, not, you know, now it's lapsed again. So, uh, it helped people stay in their homes for another, you know, six weeks or so. Um, and I think another person you can look at is Shama Swant in Seattle, who's an openly socialist member she of rules. the Seattle City Council. Yeah, and she's combined electoralism with the refaction. For example, when there was a Black Lives Matter protest in the city of Seattle, she unlocked the doors to City Hall herself so that the the protest could go in off the street, occupy it, and hold basically like a kind of people's tribunal. Um, and so I think there's a way to combine direct action with electoralism, but it's not all that uh, we should be doing. And I think uh, mutual aid networks like to get people across state lines. Um, you know, I uh, know people can from I when I... Ask you a quick question. Um, while yeah. you were, are doing the campaigning, like, the, do you think the process helps and get more, like, the process of you running, like, that itself, instead of just looking at winning as the end goal, Maybe people should, like, do you think you've gotten more people politically conscious, politically active through the process of you running and contacting them and having a community? Like, does that itself help in your opinion? It does. It gets people more involved. Um, people who say they've never had a political campaign reach out to them at all. Um, and I've been on live streams before where people ask, um, you know, I'm in such and such place. I want to get more involved. What should I do? And I, I usually tell people look for um, like your local DSA chapter or tenants union or like a food not bombs. And so if like they kind of found out about, you know, heard about my campaign and I'm able to either get them involved in my campaign or in something else politically, um, I think that's a plus. And it's kind of a, uh, you could also see it as like a radicalization route, right? I mean, okay. Um, So what, like, I guess the main thing is that most people treat their political campaigns as like a corporation that they blow up at the end instead of like an ongoing organization where they will have the people they activated. Um, So I guess, do you have plans for, let's say, like, come November of 2022? Like, is there a plan to, like, not kind of treat it like every other FEC campaign where there literally is, like, a blowing up it up at the end and then (laughs) 
what happens is that all the people get deactivated. Like, like is there a point in, I guess? Yeah, I would like to be able to do something like send an email to my list and tweet out and be like, we're, we're doing it. This is happening. Come to this location, that kind of thing. Having done more work behind the scenes, because I know that you can't just, uh, oh, hashtag general strike and we're no, all going to, no, you, know, no, no, no. you know, hashtag show up and occupy this building. So, you know, there's a lot that, and I'm not saying I would call, I'm saying like, uh, if I were going to something like what Cory Bush did, like do a lot behind the scenes first with organizers who have already been working with, uh, do a lot, you know, of interpersonal stuff, but then be able to activate people and say, okay, it's time to show up to this location and occupy this location or um, shut down this intersection, that kind of thing. I think, uh, yeah, is really important. And uh, it's important to keep people going because we've seen it like with Obama, a lot of people wanted him to keep his um, movement going and he just abandoned it. And then Bernie put it into our revolution, which um, he, re he really has not been using the movement that he built. Um, he, he sends out texts and does fundraising drives like when, when DSA took over the Texas party and other things. But he, I really think he could be doing a lot more. Yeah, I never not. hear from Bernie unless he wants $27. And like, I love Bernie. <laughs> He's amazing. But also, like, we at this point, we have the same relationship as like I do with a buck boy. Well, just can I have $27? Can I have $27? <laughs> well, you know what's interesting? <laughs> I feel um, wait, uh, Esperanza, yeah. Sorry, just Esperanza. real quick. I yeah. just, what's interesting. So I worked at Unite Here Local 11 under, you know, someone named Francis Engler, who was a longtime union director, uh, our union organizer leader. His brother, Paul Engler, who's an author oh, and organizer, wrote this public letter asking Bernie to turn his electoral machine into a sort of mass organization that is able to actually mobilize people to fight using direct action and other tactics. And Bernie didn't do it. And I think when we look at even other progressives like our so-called friends in the squad who end up sort of, you know, excusing and justifying the actions of Biden and of Pelosi, I think it really calls into question, can more electoralism guarantee women's right uh, to have power over her own reproductive capacity? And, and my answer to that is no. And I think so then the question is, well, what else is there and what else should we be doing right now? Electoralism alone will not do anything but it can be, but the problem is that people are not politically aware or politically conscious enough to understand what the um, ultimate goal is, which is really, we need to, the, the world is on fire and we need to, hit a, we need to just stop capitalism, yeah. but it, we're not there yet. So, um, and unfortunately it's never going to happen in the imperial core. So I don't know what to say. I'm very doomerish. Well, I mean, I, I think that regardless of not to sound corny, and I'm not saying this in a like, ham, like, let's meet in the middle way. I just think that regardless of what you think, uh, like, we know that the Dems are not doing all that they could do, like whether or not we think that's ever going to work. They're certainly not exhausting their options. Yeah, and I think that's worth critiquing. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that we can say that, like, you know, there are things that need to be done and that are necessary but insufficient, which is kind of how I see it. I do think that we're at the point where we have to exhaust all options um, or try it everywhere that we can. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it's definitely worth, like, exposing how pathetic it is that, that like, what the fuck is wrong with you if your response to what's happening in Texas now is, like, goddamn 
Bernie Sanders or Jill Stein or Susan Sarandon or like, let's do a throwback to Ralph Nader and these people who claim to be pragmatists. I don't know. I mean, well, well, they accused Bernie Sanders of being a secret Russian oh, agent. Oh, that's well, that's getting that's, very. Uh, that's a, that's just yeah. I mean, there's that's a case of that's a cry for help. Though I actually feel bad for that person. We can go okay. through some of them because I actually did a, a thread on, on I, those things. But um, it, it I, is. I, I mean, I, it, it, I just want to say that like the people who are pretending to be politically pragmatic and really care about the disenfranchised and the most marginalized, and then you tweet some shit like that. Like you're just revealing yourselves you don't care about this this is all about some weird like parasocial uh relationship <laughs> that you have with hillary clinton um just come clean and you know this is where the healing starts but i'm just really fucking tired of this shit um <laughs> Did they and yeah. uh, towards it or like i wonder like what would you make you stand for hillary five years later <laughs> yeah it's i don't even know um you know but I, and I, i'm just i, I think something yeah. Sorry. People need to like in Olympia, which is 45 minutes away from where I live, Olympia, Washington, the state capital. There were proud boys running around the streets, chasing people, including a female journalist and beating them up. Like she had to be evac'd off the street and hidden in a bar, like running rampant, no, with impunity. I was at one, one of these just constant throwdowns between uh, proud boys and uh, the left in the Pacific Northwest. And I don't think people realize, like I was at one where um, one one of the proud boys, one of the far right people like shot into the crowd that I was in. I'm like, we're at the point where we're having gun battles on the streets in the Pacific Northwest. And um, I think that'll probably move to the rest of the country soon. And uh, people, a lot of, um, you know, liberal centrists have, okay, Biden, you know, we're back to normal, but we're not back to normal. And back to normal was pretty fascist anyway. And yeah. so when we have Proud Boys armed running around in mobs, like armed paramilitaries on the streets, it, that kind of stuff is just going to continue. And when you have these theocratic laws put in place, um, like it, there are states that are already copying, starting to copy what Texas did and planning how they can do that. So I think um, as to, like Esperanza's point, what can we be doing all electorally? Well, I think maybe people should start looking at opening their own health clinics that provide abortion services or start co-op like start a, a health co-op start a you know like provide alternative services because the path we're going down like who knows where we're going to be in 10 years and i think it'll have been good to have set up our own systems for you know groceries health care transportation that kind of thing or even if you don't abortion feel comfortable health. oh yeah i was just gonna say like even if you don't feel comfortable providing like medical care i mean look you know, home medical care. I am from the Bay Area. I know a lot of people who do straight up witch abortions and that shit has worked for some people I know. But like, let's say you're someone like me that I'm like, I would not feel comfortable trying to assist someone with a medical procedure. Like even just organizing a network of people with cars and funds or yes. participating in an, in an existing network to get yes. people from, say, Kentucky to, you know, Pennsylvania where there's like some existing abortion access, like it, it, that makes a big difference. Well, you know, um, another thing that I wanted to bring up sort of as conversation is about the role of both religious fundamentalism, which encourages a lot of these backwards ideas and sort of reverting women back to women's place under feudalism or under slavery, as well as the constant rise of fascism 
uh, within the country and how we've seen that the liberal establishment has really been unable to do anything about it. Uh, First of all, with religious fundamentalism, we've seen that the liberals and the Democrats do not care about the communities that typically get roped into that religious fundamentalism. They leave them behind. Nobody is organizing them. And with regards to the continuous upsurges of fascism in the country, uh, they are unable to do anything about it. They are basically impotent. And so one of the things that I think we should really be encouraging are how do we get organized, Uh, not simply under any organization, um, I mean, just any random organization, but into actual revolutionary organizations that are conducting mass work within the community, that are studying together, and that understand that a few reforms here and there are not going to end this monster of patriarchal, you know, capitalist imperialism. I'm going to say that if life does not teach you uh, to be suspicious of the hegemony, it's unlikely that any organization would do that. And I don't think it's probably possible within the imperial core because people here are far too, there are, there's just the right amount of people who are far too comfortable in the imperial core to question things, in my opinion. Can you explain for people who are watching who don't know these terms, imperial core? Okay, so imperialism is where what happens is that you have a factory and um, so you extra, so the way imperialism, I have have a colonialism chart. So the way colonialism works is you go, like you go to a country, you suck out all their raw material, then you take it back to your control, you manufacture it, and then you dump it back. kind of like a DMC, sorry. Yeah, exactly. And then you dump it back it. and then you like make everyone bankrupt. Then they'll work for you in your in, in the copper mines because now they have nothing. And then the cycle goes on and on. So the U.S. is the imperial core because the U.S. has been imperializing every country that we know. Like, um, I mean, like Philippines, uh, the, the Cuba for a long time, uh, the, all of South Latin America, um, Afghanistan, Iraq. So. Um, when you're inside the imperial core, um, the trade-off is that you get to have a middle class that's a little bit more comfortable because you need the you need that middle class to go fight your wars in order to extract more resource. So they make this middle class a little bit more comfortable just to do that. But if there's just the right amount of middle class people who are just as comfortable, even if status quo is untenable in the future, they don't want to change status quo. So the idea that, oh my God, a climate change is going to happen in five years, but because they're just the right amount of people that are comfortable, you can't get them to change status quo. And that's the catch-22. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely is in the imperial core. And that's why I think in terms of who are our targets when we organize? Who are our targets when we're propagandizing is so important. You know, I often get very annoyed by the liberal sort of obsession with always trying to find the new, most radical, oppressed identity. Um, but I do think that there is something very valuable in looking at how are we agitating? How are we organizing? How are we propagandizing the most exploited? in our society, because I think it's there 
where the most revolutionary potential lies. And it's there where we need to focus on. Mm. So in that case, I'm going to say we need to expand our society because our society includes, um, I, I, I kid you not, I was looking up statistics for um, cobalt mining in Congo. Children from age three to 17, three, uh, start working in cobalt mines. So, um, but there's also a really catchy song. Look it, look it up. It's called No Congo, No Phone. So they're also like, without them, there's nothing. So I think we need to expand it just past, we need to look, like expand it past just the borders that were drawn by psychos, eh, like by British and American people like during the Sykes-Picot agreement or whatever random border. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I know I, I want to keep going, but I know that Kate has to leave, right? Kate, you have to go. So we, you have keep, to leave, we can keep talking, but I, I have to get an abortion right now. <laughs> you you got to get, get it all you can. Why don't they tell you to drink bitter water if you've been a whore or something like that, right? Hmm. I have been a whore. Okay. And you got a lot of uh, bitter <laughs> water. I have to get an abortion now. Um, I don't know. It's been eight weeks since I had a period. Um, I'm not sure what to do. Yeah. But I need to get an abortion. It has been amazing taking out with you ladies. And um, like, on, I'm kind of joking around, but like, sincerely, I feel really inspired by the discussion tonight. Wait, particularly. you should come to too. I, I would love to. I no, know. Like, you, actually, you got to give us TikTok lessons. If I had myself, I, I would love TikTok right till September 9th. Why? <laughs> well, I I just wanted to say really quick before I go that, like, I, I feel particularly inspired by the discussion of, like, how to sort of make uh, electoralism and mutual aid and stuff work just kind of, like, comprehensively, you know? And uh, I'm, I'm not phrasing that well. But I think the listeners know what I mean. Yeah. This has been a really insightful discussion and i appreciate it bye kate bye i'll bye, see kate. you later okay. bye. I, I also bye. had another thing i wanted to is it okay if i keep bringing up yeah thoughts? yeah okay. no no thoughts this is a thought-free zone yeah <laughs> <laughs> no thinking aloud okay no i'm kidding um but you know i didn't know this was congress just kidding so you know and th- another thing that i was that this um you know, abortion ban was making me think about is, so, you know, we talk about how the um, deputization of private citizens, right, to file lawsuits against anyone involved, right, in, you know, sort of aiding or providing an abortion. Um, So I think one, uh, you know, it it provides an economic incentive, right, uh, for people to That's like the only time Texas is going to pay you money. Yeah, to harass, surveil, and terrorize women, right? Um, but but I, I think that there this is not the first time that it's happened. Make sure to become Patreon supporters so you can hear the extended discussion that I have with Esperanza, Esha, and Rebecca. And we also go over some of the best and worst attempts to pin the Texas abortion ban on people like Jill Stein, Ralph Nader, Bernie Sanders, and Susan Sarandon. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.